Welcome to the Accor Report and this week in review of the Accor Report and the articles that were most uh, prominent in the life of the uh, Aquila Report and what readers were reading. Uh, so what we do is just calculate uh, and gather the matrix together and it says that these were the top 10 articles that the readers of the Aquila Report going day by day uh, chose. And so we come to you here in the uh, 1st of March here, to March uh, 8, uh, with the newsletter coming out on the 9th. Uh, to talk about these top 10 articles. It's a way of uh, a tease. It's a way of encouraging you to look at these articles when they come out in the newsletter and then to go to report and read the full uh, slate that is there for you. And so we come week to week uh, with this report in review. And I'm joined, this is Dr. Dominic Aquila, and I'm joined with uh, Paul Harrell as we have the opportunity to sort of give you a peek uh, view of what is coming and some discussion. Like I said, it's not full, but it's uh, something that will earnestly get you to uh, get come and look a little bit closer. So, Paul, welcome again to this Thank week you, sir. in review. It's a great list of top 10 as usual. Yes. Uh, well, we have wise readers. They, they, I mean, there's a lot to choose from, and uh, it just uh, it amazes me uh, what comes out. I try and guess them sometimes and I don't always get it. And I, I think I know which one they're going to do and, and don't. Well, here's the first one. And this one, I can see why it would raise a, uh, quite a bit of review. And it's by James Coates. And he is the uh, pastor of the uh, church in Alberta, uh, that uh, Grace Life Church in Alberta that um, is going through problems with the pr province of Alberta with reference to the church meeting. And it's uh, entitled Public Statement from James Coat, Pastor of Grace Life Church, Edmonton, Alberta. And it's addressing the broader public on the reasons Grace Life Church has begun gathering as a local church. Now, this is not, there was a prior letter in which uh, that uh, Coates was explaining to the congregation what was going on and that they were everyone was giving, being given the right as members to understand that we're going to start meeting the elders said but uh you know if you don't feel comfortable then that's fine we'll still stream the service uh if you do come you know we're asking that you come proper with a mask it's not going to be mass optional but you can come with or without but uh, and also we will practice social distance. So we're not going to you know, violate the rules, but uh, we believe it's time. And he was giving more biblically based reasons why it's important that the people of God in the visible church should gather together. So that was the first one. This one is now one that uh, because they were meeting, uh, the province came and arrested uh, Coates. And he is presently in jail and uh, he will have a trial probably sometime in May. And just recently, I think within the last day or so, the judge in that case has decided not to allow him to be released either on bail or by his own recognizance. I'll get it out. And um, until, uh, the, until the media, uh, until May. So he's going to have to stay in jail all this time from March until May. So in this, he is now speaking to uh, our fellow Albertans, that is the province of Alberta, and uh, giving rationale for why we're doing what we're doing. And it's a very basically an apologetic, uh, you know, that is a defense 
of where things are. And it's a very clearly written, clear-headed written. I'm sure that uh, some others worked with him uh, on this. And uh, so if you want to see what uh, sort of taking a conscientious objection is, that's principled, not uh, knee-jerk, it's not emotional, uh, it's very reasoned and rational and uh, helpful to us, uh, that... It, um, it, Basically, it says going. It goes without saying that this has been incredibly different, difficult 11 months. So it's been going on for a while. The effects and ramifications of COVID-19 and our precious uh, province are not insignificant. We sympathize with everyone who has suffered loss in this time, whether it be the loss of a loved one or loss stemming from government lockdowns, such as economic loss or suffering as a result of being denied necessary health care. Uh, given the attention our church has received in recent days, we want to address the broader public on our reasons for gathering as a local church. And what follows is not a theological defense. Uh, we have already addressed that, and he gives the highlights in that. The links are in the article. And so that has already been done. Instead, what follows will be a shed light on our approach to what being called a, what is being called a pandemic. The reason we put pandemic in quotes is because the definition of a pandemic has changed about 10 years ago. At one time, a pandemic was defined as an infectious disease that resulted in a certain percentage of excess deaths over and above normal averages. And the definition has changed in connection with the H1N1 to remove this threshold. 10 years ago, COVID-19 would have not qualified as a pandemic. In fact, not even close. And then he argues these facts and he draws from uh, write other writings and uh, accounts of scientific journals and people who are experts in the field of uh, infectious disease in terms of how these things are defined. So it's a very cogent argument. You could see him getting ready to set up his uh, what his defense is going to be when he actually goes to court uh in may if that uh, happens in that way so um something you can really sympathize with so i don't see here a rebel uh don't see this man saying i'm he, and he's willing to pay the price you know conscience and if he goes to jail right now which he is he he does so dutifully and he's not um, making himself out to be a martyr so paul we start out with um something that we've seen happen in the U.S., and now it's happening in Canada as well. Yeah, yeah definitely pray for James Coates. That's the pastor in question here, and uh, that church in Alberta, Canada. It is really an interesting letter. I, I really appreciate it. I, I you know couldn't help but wonder how many people might think upon reading this that uh, he's a conspiracy theorist, but he's not. He gives uh, the facts. The stuff about changing definitions is happening a lot, Dominic. Uh, not not only have they changed the definition of a pandemic from what it was 10 years earlier, and 10 years is not a long time, by the way. The WHO now you know, has changed what the definition of herd immunity is. It used to be those who've gotten the virus and gotten over it, and now it's some percentage of people who've actually been vaccinated. So I think what the crux of this is, and this is maybe hard for some, not in this audience, I don't think, but this may be hard for, for some in the evangelical world to you know, admit that we were not told the truth about this. Um, I really love how he, he highlights the steps that they did take 
on in the in the uh, in the onset of this, how they did shut down, how they did wait, and they said, okay, this is going to be really really bad, and then they started analyzing the results based on what they were told, and they didn't match up, so they reopened. Then there was an outbreak. He mentions that there was an outbreak in their church, meaning two people uh, tested positive for it. So they had everybody tested. Nobody else in the congregation came back positive, and they went ahead and shut down uh, for another two weeks just to make sure. So it's not as if they haven't uh, you know, taken precautions when necessary, but they're not going to let fear and fear-mongering uh, win the day and let, and I'm going to say this, a lot of these people who are at the tops of these agencies dictating to the medical community and dictating to the rest of the world what to do are themselves not believers in a, in a God. Uh, and, and so that in and of itself, Dominic is going to promote an undue fear or a more worldly fear of death than what scripture would, would speak to Christians in, in terms of what we need to do when we are corporately gathered and worshiping, you know, the one true God. And I feel like that's not going to win you any accolades in, in a culture, uh, in a, in a pagan culture, but it is so refreshing to read somebody put this to paper. And I would wonder if anybody would read this and how many of the Aquila report readers would read this and compare it to what other denominations or other churches have done how have they responded? And if there's anything in this letter that isn't true, then I don't see how it's not a prescription, pun intended, a prescription to deal with COVID-19 from a biblical worldview when it comes to churches meeting. Hmm, absolutely. It's, uh, this, you know, usually we will say something like this is a, a good uh, article that would be something for small groups and maybe personal discussion with friends uh, just in case uh, this is one to be filed away in case you ever find yourself in a principled position where your conscience can't won't allow you to do something and and just to see how it's structured there's no rancor there's no mean spiritedness there's no name calling uh, there is no shouting or yelling this very calm reasoned response uh, laying out the facts and <clears throat> when you have the facts there's no need to um, at least when you refer to facts, you don't have to uh, worry about it. So we encourage you to read that. And as uh, Paul said, we're also to pray for James Coates, because it looks like he's going to still be in jail for another three months before his trial. That means he has a, a very young family, uh, small children at home. And uh, it's also the church that's concerned about him. So uh, definitely be in prayer. Well, it's uh, another direction with the number two article uh it's a article that was interesting uh run as a news um, article in the new york times and picked up by other um news outlets and it's titled major evangelical adoption agency will now serve gay parents nationwide and it says uh, this decision comes as more cities and states require organizations to accept applications from lgbtq couples or risk losing government contracts and the particular agency that's involved here is Bethany Christian Services. Uh, Bethany Christian Services was started uh, quite a few years ago as a an adopt mainly an adoption agency, and it services uh, broken homes and also the uh, governments do use them to put help uh, put children in uh, foster homes too. But their main thing is to service the Christian community 
uh, primarily with uh, adoption, uh, both uh, in the states as well as internationally. And they've got the uh, down well. They've been well supported by churches like the Presbyterian Church in America and other uh, reformed churches and evangelical churches. And uh, Bethany Christian Service, though, announced uh, a couple of weeks ago that it would begin providing these services to the LGBTQ um, community, uh, parents, uh, same-sex couples that are uh, married or living in civil union, and uh, that they would uh, now, before they would not place any children or work with them to place children in the uh, those homes uh, where there were the same-sex uh, parents and couples, and they, uh, but now are doing so. Now, the part of the reason is the uh, that they do, uh, in working with governments, do get uh, some uh, funds from the government uh, in helping them, especially with the placing of foster children and even in uh, adoptions as well. And so they decided to uh, make this uh, announcement. This announcement significant departure, it says, of the 77-year-old organization, which is the largest Protestant adoption and foster agency in the United States. Uh, Bethany facilitated uh, 3,406 foster placements and 1,123 adoptions in the year 2019 and has uh, offices in 32 states. Uh, The organization also works in refugee placement and offers other services related to child and family welfare. So you can see it's quite uh, an involved uh, organization. Uh, So previously, openly gay prospective foster and adoptive parents in most states were referred to other agencies. So that Bethany just said, we our policy is not to work with LGBTQ individuals, but uh, let us refer you to agencies that do. Well, finally, the pressure came in terms of uh, funds that come, and it was be it was having an effect on them being able to work with uh, government agencies to place foster children, especially. And so they felt it was necessary to take this decision. So that is not a, uh, from the point of view of the state taking stand, we just talked about James Coates and how he took a stand that uh, this was not um, the way it's reported. And I think it's accurately reported because of other places where the same notions are given. Uh, it's not a very principled one, and it takes a great organization in a totally different direction. Totally. Totally different direction, Dominic. Um, you know, really think about what's in the best interest for the children here, and uh, it's it's clearly not uh, in the best interest of uh, of kids to you know go into a, an environment where you know same sex lifestyle is affirmed and and, and witnessed. Uh, I I just can't help but think. I mean. From an evangelical standpoint, from claiming to be an evangelical standpoint, I don't see how you could not say you're setting these kids up to stumble at in the very least. They're, you're setting them up to stumble, and and you're doing it for money. I mean, it's very clear here. This uh, this article here links to a New York Times at, at the Aquila Report. It's it's a it's a New York Times piece. I mean, they're doing this because they don't want their government contracts pulled. And so um, it's it's literally about money and it may be it may well be about, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but it may well be a lot of income. And it may maybe the uh, adoption agency has to close its doors if if they don't have that money. Well, I mean, 
better that than affirm, you know, than, than affirm what is clearly, you know, not what we're commanded to do, especially when, when children are, are in our care. So, uh, you know, this, this one was, I mean, I, I can understand why this was number two, because th- this, this, this is a piece of news that I just can't, um, it, it's one of those that it, it really bothers me it, 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 a great deal disturbs. Yeah. And it's, and it is, especially since Bethany really did have a sterling reputation in how it handled, uh, foster care as well as adoption. Uh, and so many great stories have come over the years. I've been familiar with, uh, Bethany, uh, for at least 40 of those 77 years they existed, um, and, uh, even supported at different times. And it's unfortunate that, uh, this has come down to this. And by the way, the same pressure points are on the other large, um, agencies, uh, the Catholic church has, uh, adopting, uh, offices and, uh, foster care offices around the country. And they're feeling the same pressure points from government. We're not going to use your uh, services uh, to uh, place anymore. And yet, you know, when it comes to the kind of work they were doing, they were actually doing much better care than the government agencies themselves. Yes. yes. And uh, so, which which is a real shame that's happened. Well, so and, and you know, happen. you you kind of could expand that, you know, the, the, the idea of the money. I mean, I, I know, I'm just putting this out there. I know there's some church somewhere that would will probably, if they decide to end the 501c3 protection for churches or the nonprofit status, there's going to be some church somewhere that's going to cave in order to keep that status and and marry gay people uh, in their church. And, and you know you know what I'm saying? It's gonna it's likely going to happen in some case. And so this is kind of foreshadowing of that. I know it's an adoption agency. It's not a church, but it definitely you know claims to be an evangelical adoption agency. So there you go. It is. Okay. Article number three is why no one understands the Reformation confessions anymore. And written by Craig Carter. Uh, this was in Credo magazine magazine. And, um, in it's February issue and the concern about confessions, the, through the, because of the Reformation, a number of catechisms and confessions were written uh the belgic confession the helvetic confession one and two uh the heidelberg catechism uh the the uh canons of dort uh the westminster confession of faith the there was some the uh, concordia the lutheran um confessions and catechisms that were also written and a number of others so the question is why don't people understand these anymore he laments that uh, fact that there's been a movement uh, away from this. So he says in the article, our problem today is that we do not understand the Protestant confessions. And so we do not really understand what it means to be Protestant as a result, because the confession uh, really does explain that. So the confessional statements, I should say, uh, we believe that the Reformation recovered biblical teaching after centuries of decline in the late medieval Roman uh, church but we cannot give an account of how the content of the confession uh, expresses biblical truth. Uh, Contemporary evangelicals are not really Protestants. For most of them, Protestantism is a movement in history, and and basically what he's arguing is they just don't understand that history. And so how did these words on those documents ever just come uh, to be? And in one other place, he um, says, 
Uh, my contention is that conservative Protestant theology today needs to undertake an uh, alter alternate to the liberal project that is comparable in scope. We need to channel a great deal of our time, energy, and resources into a project of resourcement. And by that, it's not resource, but it's just talking about where that it's it's a historical uh, reference there. So the uh, this French term brought over from over into the English means a return to the classic sources of Christianity, including the Church Fathers, um, Father Thomas Aquinas, and other forms of pre-modern uh, faith. Recently, in an encouraging development in the work of a number of theologians, many inspired by John Webster, the project of resourcement, that is recovering the past, has taken the form of looking back to the post-Reformation reformed scholastic tradition. So the the point here is, uh, one more thing, uh, I always have this highlighted, the biggest obstacle to recovery of a confessional Protestant faith today is that as moderns, we are cut off uh, we are cut off from our heritage by the philosophical naturalist metaphysics. That's a lot of mouthful, but uh, cut off basically from just understanding how everything puts works together that we have unconsciously, uncritically absorbed from our environment. And we desperately need to step outside of modernity long enough to perceive its weaknesses and limitations. But uh, we only absorb contemporary media and read recently published books and we rarely encounter pre-modern thought. And so basically he's just handling uh, that. So j just as one definition that is uh, given, a, a confession by its very definition is something that includes as well as excludes. Uh, it's sometimes understood this way that just as a preacher every Sunday as he's opening the scriptures, uh, if he's doing a good job, he's expounding scripture. That is, he's opening it up and uh, explaining the text, whether it's one verse or whether it's a whole paragraph or maybe even a whole chapter, and he's expounding it and he's putting it into its context. He explains it, he illustrates it, and then he applies it. And so that's exposition. So uh, the putting together the exposition of the scriptures for the purpose of confession is in essence, you you study it from Genesis to Revelation, and we ask, what is it saying about God and about creation and about the fall and about sin and salvation, uh, the Holy Spirit, the church, and so forth? And so you have all these categories. And then when you have all this mountain of data, you organize it and say, what is it the Scripture is teaching here? And it's put into propositional form, that is, uh, sentences and paragraphs and chapters, and here's what we believe scripture is saying. So it's expositing scripture. So while the human is doing it, just like the preacher preaches, uh, it's the intent is to be biblical in expressing what we believe the scripture is saying. And, um, and also it's put in question and answer format if it's catechetical. And so here's a question and here's the answer. And it's basically following in that same footstep. And uh, so what uh, Dr. Carter is bring up here in this article is that we have forgotten how we've got these uh, confessions and as a result we've lost a great deal of our confessional understanding and how important it is to uh, to, to make these confessions so everyone makes a confession everyone has a confession whether it's written down or not written down uh, and so he's arguing that those that have been written such as the Apostles' Creed, which is probably one of the earliest of the 
uh, post-apostolic um, confessions, it just summarizes what the essence of the gospel is, and it's a Trinitarian document. I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then it has some statements. that, And that's what the early church confessed, and we're still confessing that. And then as time went on and more exposition was done, then the um, you know we developed a larger content, but it was still flowing out of the scriptures to make sure we, we understood what we confess. So we believe it, we're included. We don't believe it, we're excluded. And that's basically what a confession does here is what we believe scripture is teaching. I really think there was just, you know, from when I'm, when I read this, it was very educational for me, but yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of ignorance that has, um, uh, I guess essentially arisen, you know, the idea <clears throat> that I, I'm Protestant, but I don't really know what Protestantism is, you know, or I certainly don't know as much as the people who lived it, uh, is, is fascinating to me. And to tie it to the ignorance of the confessions and, and what they are was really beneficial. This, this article specifically, again, it was number three on the list, why no one understands the Reformation confessions anymore, is actually a really good pairing with what made number nine on the list, Dominic, which uh, we'll just read the, I'll read the title, we'll get to it here in a minute. If I were starting a denomination from scratch, I feel like these two articles in the top 10 list kind of complement each other a little bit, just in terms of, you know, where we, uh, where we are now versus to where we, where we were. But um, I kind of hold to this idea that, uh, you know, if, you know, as a young person, young people are capable of a, of a whole lot of understanding and knowledge, way more than I think we give them credit for. And I think it's been said before. I don't know who said it, but you know, if if you're in school and you're learning uh, trigonometry, why can't you learn theology? Likewise, why can't you understand these uh, great confessional documents to help you understand more what more and more of what biblical truth is and then that also goes into when you're really young i mean how many parents are really attempting to catechize their children uh i think that's i, I would i would imagine that you could you could chart a graph and the less children who are catechized by their parents the more ignorant they are of these confessions of the of the reformation yeah, and I, I really think that's helpful. That was a rich uh, period of uh, history and thought, and uh, so it doesn't mean the truth ended with them, but they did uh, a, a tremendous job, and it really was that which gave the underpinning and foundation for the Reformation as it began spreading the world out, because right after the Reformation, then all of a sudden there, be, they, there came a, a large missionary movement, and in many instances, the confession was carried along uh, these various confessions were carried to these far-flung places uh, where the gospel was being taken. So it, it uh, at least it's a starting point that we need to be aware of and the, the, the concepts that are in it and uh, to grab hold of it. And so confessing our faith, I uh, have the privilege of teaching church history regularly. And, and <clears throat> when I uh, am in some classes, especially in urban areas, I do a little census of the class to find out who's there, what churches they attend, and what their background is. And I, one of the questions I ask is, um, how much history, not just church history, but any just history in general, have you taken? How many courses? How many of you looked at it, studied it? And not many people have. So it's not only a matter of the church history, but also our just human history uh, through the ages. And um, and so the 
I find out during the course of that time that they believe that as they're sort of having these wow factors, woo, I didn't know this, they are coming aha moments and uh, seeing connections from way in the past to things that are happening today, that they thought beforehand, though, that his uh, church history started when they became believers. And that <laughs> becomes the, <laughs> the real problem. So, yeah, <clears throat> it is a funny uh, thing. And they, they laugh at themselves. By the time the class is over, they, uh, if hopefully I've done my job well, they, they're a little more aware of the fact that we are standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us and we're it uh it's not just what's happening now that's uh important in fact what's happening now whether we're conscious of it or not is still uh built on what happened back then wherever then was so okay number four is uh brings up a problem (laughs) that is coming up it's called a new pastoral problem and written by Carl Truman, and he wrote this in First Things. A new pastoral problem. What's the new pastoral problem? And he says, the problem my pastor faces um, is how to counsel parents of teenage girls who will not drink anything before going to school, lest they have to use the bathroom, that thanks to the stroke of President Biden's pen, are now open to teenage boys who think, or claim uh, to have been born in the wrong bodies. It seems that anxiety and physical discomfort caused by the new bathroom policy will now be the new normal for young high school girls. Trans activists uh, like to use the language of, quote, safety as a way of playing to the aesthetics of their therapeutic culture and delegitimizing their critics. Well, these biological uh, biological women are no longer safe. Their spaces, like their gender, have been stolen from them by men and for men, and they now feel themselves to be in such danger that they cannot even hydrate before school lest they have to use the restroom during the day. America he, uh, has, uh, has had a number of presidents whose um, appetites meant that they arguably posed a danger to many women who crossed their physical paths. But the current president has outperformed them all. His policies have made him a danger to all women everywhere, even in high school restrooms. So that's the new pastor problem. What should a pastor counsel parents who have uh, daughters who are afraid to take a glass of water or drink some orange juice in the morning before they go to church uh, to uh, school, uh, lest they have to use the restroom? I mean, it's it's incredible that this is where we are, but uh, you know, it's it's gonna be okay. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. Uh, I can't. I mean, I, I I can't even. I. It's really getting to the point where I don't see how. And again, I have a little one, a little one that's not even near school age yet. But I I just can't see how we can we we're gonna continue to see people give their children over to the government school system with, with this, um, I mean, in good conscience, how, mm-hmm. how, how can we do that? I really think that's what the real issue here is, is, you know, you're going to, how are you going to pastor somebody when you're putting your children in this environment and, you know, not drinking water before school because you're going to expect to hold it for seven hours. Come on. Um, because you're afraid because you're in a, in an environment of fear, understandably so, because, you're trying to protect your modesty and we need to be sheltering and sheltering and protecting women. 
So, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people whose incomes depend on both spouses working. Obviously, that's that's the way our economy to really to the detriment of a biblical worldview in a lot of respects. Our economy is now set up that way where you got to have two incomes to survive. So I, I think that's another question that came to my mind is, you know, is there a way to start planning ahead and forming a plan to figure out how we're going to be able to um, survive this uh, this madness, you know, where up is down and, and down is up? Yes, it, uh, it's part of the uh, cultural context we, we live in. It, and, and I like the title there is uh, what, what's the pastor to do? Here's a new issue. And so he gets a call from congregants and saying, my daughter isn't uh, uh, drinking any water or taking liquids. We're afraid of having to go to the bathroom because of this policy. And so it's uh, something we have to think about and how will we counsel? So if you're in the place of facing it yourself with your children or your pastor or you're somebody who gives uh, counseling, counseling, what uh, do you really say? Okay, number five is uh, sort of a, a uh, sort of an, catching up on what has taken place with regard to church attendance over this last year. So we've had a year, and so Trevin Wax has written an article, "The State of Church Attendance as COVID Turns One." So here we are at the age one already. It was about this time last year, March of uh, 2020, that uh, things were beginning to uh, close down. And uh, we didn't realize what was coming around the corner and how long it would be. And so it did have an effect on churches as we said, okay, let's just retrench, you know, the closing the schools and businesses and restaurants and churches, everything, you know, and, and there was a receding in, into our homes until little by little made a distinction, you know, essential workers and other things like that. But not every uh, place uh, was open. So what what effect did it have on the church and what uh, during the year and what can it portend for the future? So it says here just in general, most churches in the United States, 76 percent met in January of this year. So that's uh, the 76 have already sort of opened up, but they're not open completely. But that percentage dropped 11 percent from uh, and excuse me, 76. Yeah, 11 percent from September 2020, which indicates that the early winter surge of covid uh, cases led churches to step back into a temporary state of uh, being online only. Even though most churches are meeting again, the difference from a year ago is drastic. One of the churches meeting of the churches meeting in person, a third of the pastors say they are averaging only 50% of their attendance a year ago, from a year ago. Another third say their attendance is at least 70% of what it was in January of 2020. Uh, within that number, only 8% of the pastors say they are 90% or above of their attendance from the first month of 2020. So they have uh, the, your given links to go look at the data and charts and so forth. In short, for the vast majority of churches in the United States, in-person gatherings have resumed, but the number of attendees is significantly lower. And then it uh, highlights it with reference to adult ministries and with student ministries and to children ministry. And then he 
concludes with looking forward. The statistics on COVID hospitalizations and vaccinations continue to improve in the United States. And yet, even with uh, mitigation efforts in place uh, and churches open for worship, pastors are cautious in making bold predictions. So less than half of the pastors uh, that were surveyed expect their adult small groups to be meeting by the end of uh, summer of even of 2021, and 36% are even unsure about that. Similar numbers bear up for student ministries and kids ministries as well. Perhaps many pastors have been expecting for uh, more than a year <clears throat> that things would um, were about to get better only to be forced back into a season of quarantine or temporary closures. So that's about where it is. You're, you go forward, two steps forward, one back, maybe three forward, two back. <clears throat> but it just seems like it's difficult. And uh, so this is a sort of a, a, a 10,000 foot scan of the nation and how church attendance is doing, how it's affecting uh, not only worship, but also the various ministries of the church. So it's an interesting study to get what it, what the effect has been in this area of culture we know how it's affected uh, education and schools and how it's done with universities and also with uh, businesses and the like. I wonder what the attendance of the Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta is. Um, it, yeah, it's a good question. I think it, it reports it. It's the house is full. They had some pictures in some of those mm-hmm. articles that showed it failed. So, I mean, they closed down a little bit. But, you know, then they open back up. Now their pastor is in jail. I, I compare that to the state of churches attendance as the COVID turns one year old. I, you know, I talked to my uh, I have a family member who goes to a large church in Texas. And she was saying, you know, we, we you know, we've made all the social distancing provisions and the and, you know, we're back open and we're masked and everything else. But the elderly, you know, those those provisions are really there for people with the comorbidities, they haven't returned. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of people that just still aren't coming back for, for whatever reason. Um, and I think one of those is still, you know, the, uh, just, I, I guess the quote unprecedentedness, uh, of, of what we experienced in 2020. It's just, uh, you know, it's interesting, some, something to compare. Yep. Uh, and it's uh, and it's affecting. So the quote that people like, to, you know, what's the new normal going to be like uh, and will it ever come back to where it was? And the there were some other surveys that I read we haven't uh, reported here on this one uh, is that the assumption that pastors have just based on what the anecdotal information they're getting from their uh, people who the members and people who attend regularly is they're not going to reclaim everyone that the people have, will have gotten used to being at home and joining by streaming in some of some more so some form and or they've just decided they didn't they survived not going to church so they're not going to come back at least not right away so it's just a broad you know mix up there and uh, churches are having to adjust in so many ways uh, to how they do ministry it isn't we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, as uh, to quote uh, our young lady from Kansas there. Um, okay, so now a warning sign. This next article is number six. Uh, warning signs that the state of evangelical pop culture. So we're going. That's not just the church now. This pop culture. Uh, so the visible institutional church matters. And so this is the warning 
about the state of the evangelical pop culture itself, the evangelical world. Uh, this is by um, on Heidel, a blog by uh, Scott Clark. The evangelical world is gravely ill. The disease is not COVID-19. It's not even what you might think it to be. After all, we should not be surprised of finding out about the sin within the highest precincts of Big Eva. Big Eva is a sort of colloquial word of the big evangelicalism. Big Eva is that name if you want to be hip and know how to talk in that kind of lingo. And it refers to different celebrities. Uh, Big Eva doesn't like that name either. (laughs) I know. Big Eva doesn't. (laughs) That's right. Uh, They take umbrage at that. Uh, So, you know, you have celebrity pastors and others who are in high places that have fallen and given themselves over to different actions and and so forth. And you have, uh, he mentions different uh, institutions that have sort of left their moorings. We've talked about Bethany Christian services earlier. And so that's all part of Big Eva, Big Evangelical Church. Now, now he, uh, uh, Dr. Clark brings up uh, what happens in the uh, uh, CCM, which is a Christian um, music uh, performers. Um, and this is where you, your your recordings come, and they they are sort of the chart of what is number one and all that kind of thing. Uh, there's been a spate of stories for more than a decade, Clark writes, about leading CCM performers and figures coming out as homosexual. Uh, Ray Bolts start started this movement in 2008 when he came out in the Washington Blade, which is uh, known as a uh, gay magazine or newspaper. He says he is now living a, quote, normal gay life, and the reader may be certain that uh, the Apostle Paul would call that an oxymoron. Hmm. And this past July, uh, Matthew Paul Turner, the former editor of Contemporary Christian Music, that's CCM there, magazine, also announced his homosexuality and his divorce. Of the stories I read about uh, Semler, and uh, this is uh, the gal who just came out recently, whose chart on, had number one, her number one song on the CCM uh, chart, um, her professional name. The Huff, uh, Huff Po or Huffington uh, Post article was most illuminating. A lot of headlines are misleading. When most of us are thinking about CCM, we're thinking about theologically conservative people trying to communicate more or less traditional, modern. Uh, evangelical theology to some some genre of rock. Uh, you think of uh, Larry Norman or Chuck Gerard or many other performers who have set the trajectory of CCM, whose uh, record I was playing at New Life 95 uh, in, uh, in back in Nebraska and back in Lincoln. So now comes um, the in the HuffPo explaining this about uh, Semler. Uh, the daughter of an Episcopal priest, Semler, said she grew up growing the church multiple times a week. The Christian community she was raised in was generally welcoming to LGBTQ Christians, allowing a queer parishioners to a queer parishioner to, to serve in leadership roles. But even with such a progressive religious upbringing and parents who wholeheartedly embrace her, Semler said that she wasn't shielded from toxic Christian theology, and she was still exposed to it when she went on a mission trip or attended uh, church camps. So basically what is saying is that um, that with this coming out, not more recently, and here she is in the number one chart, uh, this there just appears to be, Clark says, a narcissism that is taking place. 
And the way that you put it together with a syllogism is, number one, Semler identifies as a Christian. Number two, Semler thinks X. And number three, therefore, X is a Christian truth. And so she thinks of herself as uh, as a Christian is granted that she thinks X, that is her opinion regarding LGBTQ sexualities, is granted, but it does not follow that her views necessarily qualify as Christian. And then he goes on to deal with that. So the the point here is that he's just saying, pay attention to what's happening. What are the warning signs that the state of evangelical, evangelical pop culture is um moving away from any semblance or resemblance of or semblance of Christianity uh, and its biblical roots, especially as, at least in the broadest sense, uh, had professed an evangelical commitment. Yeah, and I, you know, bring up the slippery slope a lot, but, you know, you mentioned that this started happening a decade ago, and and I, I really, you know, look how this filters into different denominations and into your local church. Um, and so it, it definitely is, uh, you know, something that has happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like it's even up for debate anymore. I mean, I guess you could ask where the influence but it, it is coming from. But it's it's really kind of to, a, totali- a totality, excuse me, I can't get my words out, a totality of, uh, of an approach here where, you know, a Christian entertainment, I mean, that is, that phrase in and of itself, we could really, we could have a whole show on that, you know? So, uh, anyway, yeah, it was an interesting article, warning signs about the state of evangelical pop culture, the visible institutional church matters. And I also think really, you know, some of these songs that may have been, this is just a speculation, but may have been theologically lacking over the years. Maybe that may, I mean, that could also be a reason why this has, uh, this has happened, you know, this, this, uh, this kind of lurch towards the left, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that may be one reason why there's uh, the seventh article on the Aquila report this week uh, that was read by readers and clicked on is when Amazon erased my book. And it's written by Ryan T. Anderson, who a number of years ago wrote uh, a book, and this is one of many that he's written. He's written quite a bit on marriage and uh, sexuality and so forth. When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Movement. That's titled the book. It was just released uh, exactly three years ago. And it was attacked twice in the New York Times op-ed page. The Washington Post ran a hit piece on on it that was uh, riddled with errors. It was obvious the critics hadn't read the book. But they they were threatened by it and wanted to discredit it, uh, lest anyone pick it up and learn from it. Now, three years after the publication, this book, When Harry Became Sally, uh, Sally uh, in the same week that the House of Representatives plans to ramp through the Equality Act, which we're gonna, is the 10th article that we'll look at, what is this Equality Act, we'll see, a radical transgender bill, uh, uh, amending the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Amazon has erased my book opposing gender ideology from its cyber shelves. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about the erasure culture, cancel culture, uh, something you don't care for. And so those that are in the position of ability to do so then just erase you they 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 cancel you and so you have no uh, bookshelves to uh, go on the um 
It, and it, so here's a book that was dealing, responding to the whole idea of the transgender moment and what's happening with that, what's involved in it, and uh, so forth. And it's uh, just a you know shame that that has to happen, and we're seeing it happen with other things. So Dr. Spock has now been canceled. Uh, uh, what's that? Uh, uh, Pew de Pew or Pepe de Pew has been canceled just recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah and Pepe, uh, yeah. you know, Little Dr. House on Seuss. the Prairie. Dr. Seuss has been canceled. Yeah, Dr. Seuss and uh, Pepe Le Pew and uh, the leading parts of uh, Little House on the Prairie have also been canceled for a number of things. And then uh, with reference to some statues, you've got people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and folks like that who also have been canceled in some places because of them not being 100% in line with whatever the opinion of um present day culture happens to be one of the things again since i mentioned i teach uh, church history and love it greatly is that i said if uh one of the benefits of of it is the that we learn not only from the affirmative the positive so the confessions that we talked about a few moments ago uh that what they teach us what they tell us give us some history but we also learn from the mistakes and the flaws and the things that people did with that were not right and we evaluate those and say, let's hope that now, having seen what they did, saw, seeing how they got into the problem they did, seeing the outcomes, because we have the, uh, the benefit of time to look back and we can survey the landscape of the rubble and the heap and the ashes, uh, you know, it's a learning time. And so instead of being afraid of anything, we should uh, celebrate them, not celebrating the mayhem but celebrating the fact that we can say, if we see something comparable to this, we'll be a little bit more uh, careful or we'll take a different turn. We, we understand the principles at work and things like that. So um, Ryan Anderson here, just writing about this whole matter, I think uh, really helps us. So he says at the end, my prediction is that in short run, I'll sell thousands more copies of the book thanks to Amazon censorship. In the media, medium run, things will get worse for those who hold to traditional American values. But in the long run, uh, a people can struggle against the natural law for only so long, and that's true both for econ uh, economics and gender ideology. And I agree with that. And so we'll have to learn that this is one of those things that uh, some historian uh, 50 years, 100 years from now, looking back to this time in the 21st century, you say, look, they were doing book burnings and they were canceling culture. And fortunately, we were able to go into some deep archive where someone stored it away and read it so we can restore what was I taking hope, place. I hope you're right. I hope that's the attitude we have 50 years from now. But you're exactly right. They're burning books. This is the digital equivalent of burning books. And I can't think of any time in modern history where burning books was being done by the good guys, you know? I mean, it's being done by very evil people in the past. And, you know, the hypocrisy abounds. You can still buy Hitler's Mein Kampf, you know? Do I want you to read Mein Kampf and, and you know, appreciate it and implement it? No. But, I mean, I'm not going to support it being banned because if you ban one, you could ban something else. Um, this is, when we say totalitarianism, That's this is a part of totalitarianism. They want your total agreement. And if you read Dr. Seuss or enjoy Pepe Le Pew, um, you know, with the, they say Pepe Le Pew now uh, supports uh, rape culture is what, what he said um, in, in the cartoon. 
And what was weird is last week, you know, this article when Amazon erased my book uh, came out on uh, March the second, uh, and I guess I guess later, maybe that that's the day or the next day. Anyway, I was putting my daughter to bed, and I was actually reading her uh, Mulberry Street, the Dr. Seuss book Mulberry Street. And I wake up the next day, and that's one of the books that they're canceling because of uh, you know some a depiction of a of a Chinese person. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's it's uh it's very or history is repeating itself in a lot of fronts, Dominic. We're seeing it in our culture, and we're seeing it in our churches. Yeah, and it's uh, something that we should uh, be care about. But I'm glad you told me that you read that book because I was thinking of canceling you out of this, and um, <laughs> I'm always suspicious of you, you know. Well, oh yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> I, I also <laughs> indulge in a Looney Tunes every now and then. So. Oh my my. Well, uh, we'll have to uh, re relook at your resume. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's no, it, it's a serious matter, and the we if we didn't have all of that history, just imagine if you read through uh, the Bible, all the stuff that is there that was not very enlightening, very you know, it it, it puts you know people out there that we count sort of as the you know, paragons of faith, you know, Abraham and David and so forth. And yet they did things that were just outlandish and crazy. And what if we had sanitized the scripture just to make them look like they never did anything wrong? It would have given us a, a, a faulty picture mm -hmm. of what was taking place. And that's just not healthy. And it's not good for us historically. Uh, and we, we're the losers of that. And the fear factor then comes in with the um, eighth article, Will they come for the homeschoolers? And, of course, when you think come for the homeschoolers, well, that sounds like the cancel culture and what's going to be erased and taken away. And, indeed, that's what it really is referred to. So the fact that maybe these two articles were read back to back and uh, was number seven, number eight on the Aquila Reports uh, list, then it uh, means that there is something that it's a uh, at least a itch that's being scratched, uh, something that people are asking questions about, uh, starts out, perhaps I was wrong. Just a few weeks ago, right after the presidential inauguration, one of my wife's close friends, another parent in our homeschooling co-op, expressed the fear that homeschooling is likely to come under greater scrutiny with the new administration. I shook my head in dissent. Sure, I acknowledge there are some, particularly on the left, who are suspicious and critical of homeschooling, but ours is a strong movement with political clout. I assured her with millions of American Christians, uh, kids, American kids rather, uh, uh, currently being taught at home. And by the way, that number increased during this year of COVID, so uh, it wasn't just the Christians that were doing it now. It would be foolish and unnecessarily provocative to target homeschoolers right now. So that's what I was thinking. And then this author um, uh, says, as uh, Casey Chalk, this uh, early or this month, a lawyer and prominent author, Jill Filipovich, uh, whose articles have appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times and The Guardian, among others, launched a polemical frontal attack assault on what she terms, quote, pro-life, pro-family homeschooling advocates, close quote. These, quote, right-wingers, to quote Ms. Filippo, Filippi, uh, Filippolit, I'll get it right, Filipovich, uh, undermine children's basic safety and right to an education. 
She accused uh, accuses conservative homeschooling parents, many of whom she asserts lack the necessary credentials and training uh, to teach properly, of willfully keeping their children ignorant, ignorant, as well as shielding their youth from ideas that might threaten their religious beliefs. She even implicitly claims that homeschooling parents are racist. So that's she sets that up. Now it's interesting that she accuses these parents of doing the very thing that the one other side of the spectrum is doing, and that is uh, shielding their uh, kids from certain things that threaten beliefs. That What's that? That's cancel culture, isn't it? And I would dare say that's probably not happening. Uh, you know, the pre- premise is that uh, the more speech, the more free speech you have, not the less. And uh, so let, let, let it flow. So granted that this uh, may be influential, she won several awards, uh, this uh, author, and written a couple of widely acclaimed books. Her opinion on homeschooling is still a minority one. Indeed, in 2020 poll found that not insignificant percentage of parents are likely to homeschool even after COVID. And uh, there are other articles that we've had on the Equal Report that have actually um, stipulated that and uh, shown data on that. And while parents' satisfaction with the quality of children's education significantly declined in 2020, the percentage of K-12 parents who homeschool doubled, according to a Gallup poll. So the will that be the thing they come at after next? Now, the homeschooling yes. has always had a problem, uh, you know, from the very beginning because of school tr- truancy laws and that kind of thing. And they finally were able to win many of their cases through that almost every state now uh, allows it without too much difficulty, but it may rise once again. Yeah, there are states out there who uh, have more regulations on homeschooling than not. Now, uh, I'm just letting you guys know uh, the state of Arkansas actually has some of the most deregulated homeschooling regulations in the country. Just food for thought. Um, it's kind of uh, one of the <laughs> one of the bright spots in the in the government there. Um, do your research though. Look up, you know, there's a lot of states that have already done this legwork that have already made a lot of inroads in freedom, uh, you know, for your, your rights as parents to educate your kids, homeschool your kids. In my opinion, homeschool them. Well, don't shield them from these ideas, teach them, uh, these, you know, teach them the biblical defenses for, you know, these, uh, you know, these crazy backwards, uh, you know, ideas. Um, they really just don't want you guys. I'm going to be honest. They're coming for homeschoolers because they don't, they don't want you raising your kids to be a voter like you. I mean, they, this is all about political power for them. This is all about, um, again, totalitarianism. They want your total agreement. And the fact that there's still white parents, and I said white because she said, you know, racism and might as well, you might as well throw in domestic terrorism. If you homeschool your kids, you're probably a domestic terrorist. That is where this is headed. Um, the Washington Post had a story out this week, Dominic, about people who are hesitant about vac- uh, about vaccinations need to be considered domestic terrorists. So the, the, any thought that deviates from what we're told to think is anathema to the other side. And so, yeah, will they come from homeschoolers? Yes, they already are. And just because it's a minority opinion now 
uh, you know, doesn't mean that they, I mean, the government loves to enforce, obviously they love to enforce the opinion of the minority on the majority. They are doing it right now with the bathrooms. So if they'll do it and violate your, your privacy, when you're going to the bathroom, they really don't care about the privacy of your home and, and educating your kids. Well, that's uh, where uh, Casey Chalk in this article comes down at the very end, the last paragraph. He says those like uh, Filipovich, uh, who attack homeschooling, uh, wax eloquent regarding children's rights as such, as much as they talk about protecting children from sexual or uh, physical abuse, I'll support them. Yet uh, they con- the content of their arguments lead me to think this is simply cover for shifting pedagogical and child-rearing authority away from the parents whose ideas they find reprehensible to a paternalistic or materialistic, maternalistic, or Filipovich would say that, uh, secular state. And as a student and former teacher of history who knows a thing or two about totalitarianism, I find such a prospect deeply troubling. So that's, yeah, where we are. And uh, it's one thing, well, just be alert. And uh, we have a responsibility, at least in our uh, country, that to take our stand and to defend. And again, if we do it with reason and rationality, I think that we will eventually prevail because after a while, people, the the if you take a cue from something that was horrendous in the history of mankind, at the very time when the United States was being formed and writing its constitution in 1787, about the same time in France, there was the French Revolution. And so here you had the Revolutionary War from 1776 to 1781 in the U.S., and that's what the founding of the where the U.S. came from. And then just within the same decade, then came the French Revolution. They, even though both of them called revolutions, they were totally different. Uh, the one in the U.S. was law-based. The one in France was man-based. And eventually, even though they were killing a lot of people, making everybody uh, toe the line uh, with Robespierre and so forth, eventually he got guillotined. And that led eventually to uh, Napoleon coming as a dictator, taking over things. But we have survived 240-some years with a constitution, a clearly defined thing. And so we have our up and down. And uh, so we just need to realize that we apply uh, the law and, uh, but, you know, just make sure that we stand up for what we think is valid and true. Okay, well, we need to move on. Um, we have a uh, number nine is if I were to start uh, my own denomination, what would I do? All right. If I were to start a denomination from scratch and uh, this uh, is a um, um, article that speaks about, um, uh, you know, w- you know, w- what what would it take? You know, he said he sets up a proposition. As many of you know, our church is in the process of leaving our denomination. Uh, this case, I won't mention that uh, it has been a long, exhausting process. If you want to read about it, you can find about it here, here, here. And then he gives all the links for you to be able to uh, see uh, where what the history of that movement is. And so our process has been delayed by COVID-19 over the last uh, the next. But over the next six months, we'll be engaged in fairly elaborate processes of uh, engage, disengaging from our historic association. 
As my timeline above indicates, there was uh, not a decision we arrived at lightly. We've enjoyed over 140 years of friendship and partnership with these people. We invested in the kingdom, worked together, we prayed together, and we worshiped together. But now is the time to separate. And he talks about that. So what would he do? Based on what I read in the Bible and what I experienced over the last 10 years, if I were to build the denomination from scratch in 2021, what would it look like? And he gives a number of things, insists on a near total theological agreement. So that goes along with the confession that we spoke about earlier, that uh, there needs to be a clearly defined definition theologically, then that comes with a confession or catechism that explains this is what we believe the Bible is saying, and we corporately uh, believe um, in that process. Uh, Think small, local, and relational is another thing that uh, this author puts up, and focus on leadership development, consultation, and support. In other words, instead of a top-down dictator type individual, that you have this collaborative focus on leadership, working together to build what we believe is necessary. And there are some other things that are are stated here, which you can read tomorrow. If I were to start a denomination from scratch and just put that to you, uh, I forgot to mention the author's name is Paul Carter. Yeah, I just it stuck out to me. Leave church planning to other churches. Healthy churches are good at planning other churches. Denominations generally are not. I found that to be a very interesting concept uh anyway yes uh, absolutely it is but if you're going to do it from scratch what will it look like and uh if we were going to build a nation from scratch what would look like well we already know because it was done uh within the last uh, 200 years and uh we have uh, a you know a constitution that even though it's got to be interpreted and eventually from by the executive the legislature and their judicial branches uh, nonetheless, it, it it's a has set up guardrails to protect what we're uh, what we're about. Well, uh, the Equality Act was just passed by the House of Representatives. Now it's going; it'll be going over to the Senate. Uh, the hope is that since they pro- most likely need ten, uh, need sixty votes there, that uh, most likely they will not get it. But unless someone plays some politics over there. And this is a article, the Equality Act, what to, to know and what to do uh, by John Stone Street in Breakpoint, uh, which is the radio ministry of uh, prison. Uh, I mean, of um, yeah, prison fellowship. So the uh, looking at the uh, you know at this article, what what is the Equality Act? There's a number of things. It's not seeking equality. It, it, it's not like saying we want to make sure everyone's equal. Uh, everyone's equal under the law, of course, is one of the statements that we have in the Constitution. Uh, but the Equality Act really goes much deeper than that um, to um, create difficulties going along with uh, the state, the article that we had about uh, what is a pastor to do, the new pastoral problem, which is uh, girls afraid to hydrate themselves before Mm -hmm. school. It fits into the bathroom issues, medical doctors. It says, uh, and secular and religious, religious, secular and religious groups whose exempt in judgment is, uh, is that sex reassignment procedures are misguided would now run afoul of our civil rights laws if the Equality Act was passed. 
If you perform a mastectomy in the case of breast cancer, uh, you will have to perform one on a teenage girl identifying as a boy, all in the name of equality. And so that equality is just, if it can, you can do it over here for real medical purposes, you have to do it over there if someone believes that it's uh, something that has to happen. Uh, it would be uh, have a uh, dramatic impact on education and uh, public and private uh, meeting, uh, both probably public and private schools, according to a new coalition called Promise to America's Children, a coalition I'm proud to be a part of. The Equality Act uh, greases the skids for more graphic curricula about sex, abortion, and politicized ideas about sexual orientation and gender identity theology. So it, it just filled with things that uh, are happening without that law, but it will give it the uh, stamp of being legal and make it more difficult to fight against. So uh, it's something you should equate uh, to look at and uh, uh, understand what it contains and not assume that it may not get passed. You know, we need to make sure it's clearly business before the Senate, not uh, something that we want to be picked up and uh, passed into law. I remember when uh, George W. Bush said uh, in the 2008 financial collapse that he had to uh, violate free market principles in order to save the free market. Um, A completely ridiculous statement, but I I feel like they have to violate our civil rights in order to promote civil rights. That's that's what they're trying to tell us right now, and it makes no sense. Um, But uh, here we are. We need to. Make sure that it, uh, you know, that this doesn't, uh, this doesn't pass, um, and you know, make your voice heard. Um, if if it, you know, if it does fail, which right now it looks like it, it may, then um, you know, you, you're probably going to see a lot of this with executive orders coming down the pike. In fact, they're already there. Some have already been given. Fortunately, those can be uh, fought easier than if it's actually encoded into law. Well, uh, they're the top 10 uh, of the top 10 read articles on the Aquila Report, and we invite you to visit the Aquila Report on a regular basis as we post our articles regularly every day. And you can go to the theaquilareport.com. Uh, you can, if you don't receive the newsletter, you can do so uh, by just on the site. Uh, there's a box there. You can click and put your your email as i always say we don't use that email for anything other than um the equal report it's not sold to anybody else and uh you i think will enjoy receiving that weekly and being able to see what your fellow readers are thinking and so we're delighted that uh, we're able to provide this podcast as a way of teasing you to let you know what's out there what your fellow readers are thinking um and just be informed Uh, hopefully about things in the life of the church and in culture uh, to understand uh, biblical principles, uh, theological issues, uh, know who's who in the the world of religion and the church. So thank you for joining us today. And Paul, thank you for handling all the details on this. Thank you, Dominic.